The Good Investing Podcast connects you with successful investors and business leaders who invest in or are experts in a range of industries, but do it with a difference. The discipline around what's being paid for assets and who gets to survive in this environment is is a good thing. And you know, I think it's just the same for investors, the same for companies in terms of what they actually will do with shareholders' money. It's very different today than what it would have been a couple of years ago. Well, welcome to a special edition of the Good Investing Podcast. My name's Matt Nakan. I'm co-founder of Ethical Partners Funds Management. Today, we feature the other co-founder, Investment Director of Ethical Partners, Nathan Parkin. And this episode is timed especially the end of the year for a uh, very, very unique year in markets, that's for sure. And just a little bit of a preview in this episode, Nathan speaks about how the second quarter this year threw up opportunities to own the very best companies in the market. And that's the type of opportunity that comes around only once in a decade. Nathan also gives us unique insights into the difference between investing in a rising inflation environment versus the low interest rate environment of 2018 to 2020. He also translates the macro environment into what it actually means for companies on the ground. We talk about excessive pessimism, and why that can often be a good time to invest. And we break down inflationary drivers and pinpoint why on balance of risks, maybe the worst might be behind us with regards to inflation. Nathan also outlines key company positions and how the portfolio is positioned for 2023. Good morning, Nathan. Today is actually your birthday. So what better way to celebrate um, your birthday than doing a podcast? How are you? I'm well, Matt. Thank you. Thanks for the intro. Very good. All right. Well, let's just have a look at 22 just briefly, um, probably a, a year many of us would like to forget. And and look, you couldn't write the script even if you tried looking at the events of um, 2022. Who would have thought we'd have three waves of a global pandemic resulting in lockdowns of varying levels of severity, extreme levels of fiscal and monetary stimulus to extraordinary levels, massive supply chain disruption, more stimulus, which in hindsight was probably unnecessary, inflation rearing its head significantly in the first half of the year in particular, war in Europe just to keep inflation going a little bit more, then tightening monetary policy, what I would call broadly directionless fiscal policy with the UK missteps noted, and now the expectation of a recession in the next 12 months in uh, many markets around the world. Now, Nathan, you're going to help us make sense of all that. You're looking forward to that? Look, it's very hard to make sense of all of that. Um, but I think the only way to approach markets like we've seen is to be prepared. You need to have done your homework before volatility happens. You need to have done your homework before interest rates move and before the market goes down. And I think knowing what you own, why you own it, and the right price for those assets is key. And look, our investment process is like a compass in these times. You know, the terrain can move, but at least you you stay focused on what is really important. And for us, that's things like balance sheet. So we'll never invest in overly geared companies. We'll never invest in companies that don't have the ability to make strong cash flow. Uh, and we won't invest in companies where we don't go and meet the management and understand that they know what they're doing, that they know their place in the industry, uh, that they have a good ESG strategy in place. And so knowing all of that before things happen, I think is is the key. And that's, that's really the only way to survive and and be able to invest and and have some conviction in an environment that's utterly uh, unpredictable, like we've seen over the past couple of years. All right. So let's just start off by stepping through the year we've just had, because I think it'll give everyone some insight into um, how you think and, and the ethical partners investment philosophy as you've just touched on then. Let's just start with Q1. I can't remember a worse January. I think the market was down around 7 to 10%. 
and certainly jolted us all out of the uh, the Christmas and holiday season. Talk to us about Q1 and uh, that leading into into Q2. What what you saw at that point? Yeah, the market was down about six and a half percent in January, um, but by the end of the first quarter, it was actually up 0.6. So you've had this uh, very weak start to the year, and usually a weak start to the year precipitates a, a a weak calendar year. That's that's kind of the history of it. But it it bounced back very quickly, which was interesting. I think the market was trying to determine what the interest rate increases would lead to, how to position for that. Obviously, Russia invading Ukraine was another factor that came out of left field. So there was a, there was a lot of question marks. Uh, there was a, a good deal of uncertainty. There was a cycle just ahead, uh, an interest rate cycle that we haven't seen for a decade. So I think the market was scrambling to, to understand how to, how to deal with that. And, and that's kind of why we ended up the first quarter with roughly flat. And then uh, moving into second quarter? Yeah, second quarter, um, June quarter was down 13%, followed by September quarter down another 1%. Um, so with a lot of volatility in between that. And actually, you know, when, when I'm jumping forward a bit here, but just this week when you look at the ASX 300, including dividends, it was actually only down just earlier this week, down 0.4% for the year, having fallen at 12, you know, 13% at its low point back in June. So it feels like a lot of noise for a year, which, you know, if you had to close the exchange and reopened it today, nothing would have moved. Although the market construct does look very different. Um, it's been a year where energy prices have gone up. Um, the biggest contributors to the move in the index, you know, stocks like BHP, uh, the coal companies, oil oil and gas companies. And these are areas where we're, you know, underrepresented or don't own, don't own securities in these spaces. So the construct of the market looks very different now. The resources weighting is is very high versus what it was at the start of the year and two years ago. So I think whilst the market's overall been flat, the what's driven performance um, is very different to the last couple of years. What that's led to though, we've reacted to that. We'll talk about that as we go through, but it's driven some opportunities um, to sell those things that have held up well um, and that people are kind of scrambling into to cover the inflationary environment. And it's led to a weakness in other areas um, where, we, where we see some terrific opportunities. Okay. So I'd like to touch on a couple of things here. So firstly, in particular in, in Q2, we took the opportunity to take a closer look at many quality factors within companies in the investment universe. And when people consider quality as an attribute or an outcome of the investment process. What, what does that actually mean to you? Yeah. So what, what, what quality means to us is those companies that are undergeared, uh, i.e. they have options around the balance sheet that they can use. Uh, I can go into what some of the uses for a good balance sheet are. It means that they have very strong cash flows uh, and recurring cash flows that, that uh, can endure a business, you know, endure through time. Um, the businesses that have a good record of of being able to grow and deploy capital and have management teams that are, are very experienced and have seen cycles before and and know that you know if they do the right things and use the options available to them and they do have options at times of weakness, they can come out the other side of a cycle even stronger and ver stronger versus their peers. I mean, we uh, at the at the start of the year at December twenty twenty one, we were overweight in in the materials space. Uh, we started the year that way positioned. We had overweight positions in things like Oz Minerals, Blue Scope, Macquarie Bank, IGO, um, and three of our top five absolute positions were in the materials space. Um, we've taken the 
opportunity through the year to essentially upgrade the quality of the portfolio, going back to that question. Uh, we now own stocks like Goodman Group, Pinnacle, West Farmers, and Reese we didn't own a share of at the start of the year. And you know, why have we done that? You know, These are businesses, um, the last four that I named, that have uh, good track records, they have great management teams. Um, the price that they were trading at the start of the year didn't make sense to us, so that's why we didn't own shares. It wasn't because they weren't good quality. We just we just like to invest uh, in businesses that have optionality and have growth, but without paying for that. So some of these stocks, we can go through the examples in more detail. The PE that you have to pay today is half of what it was at the start of the year. So the market has discounted some companies overly and chased other ones. And we've sold the ones that in the material space in particular that have held up really well through the year and reinvested that capital into very high quality companies that that we've got a lot of confidence in over the cycle. And you know, what that means is that, you know, that the price you're paying today, we think is a very good investment opportunity looking forward. Um, and you don't get that many chances in markets to to do that. Usually quality trades that are prohibitive multiple and for all of the right reasons. I mean, these, these companies have demonstrated a long track record of being able to invest their capital well in markets that are attractive. The returns are good. Uh, the return on equity is good. The returns for shareholders are good um, and have demonstrated track record of doing that. So, you know, it's only natural that people are happy to pay a very high price for that. We we see the current environment as one where the discount attached to those businesses is is markedly lower and we're happy to we're happy to back ourselves that we've done our homework on them that we know them um, well enough to take large positions there so could you just run us through a, a few more of the attributes of, of what constitutes quality you've touched on through the cycle performance but what are some of the aspects you're looking for so we're looking for uh, management that have a demonstrated track record of of actually having run their business through a full cycle so these are management teams that have been around for 20 years in the same business. They're those that are highly regarded and, and rightly so and uh, are generally picking cycles pretty well. So they're not acquiring um, companies at the top of the cycle then having to write those down. They're investing when others can't and, and won't or, or, or are too afraid to. Um, they're not expanding you know, their businesses when asset prices are cheap. So these are management teams that are very experienced first and foremost. There are also companies that um, have higher margins than their peers and, and other, uh, other companies um, that we look at. So higher margins, you can do a lot with that. Once you have revenue and good gross margin, there's a lot below that, um, that that you can be flexible with. But if you have very skinny margins, the slightest change in revenue um, will go straight to the bottom line. So those companies that operate with good margins in good competitive spaces but can actually retain and retain that for the benefit of shareholders. Um, we look at uh, those acquisitions that have been made in the past and do an assessment of how how good they were and, and, and we're looking for, for smart decisions going back in time. Looking at companies that have enduring competitive advantages so can they sell their product for a premium? Are they always discounting something um, is not a great sign? Are they having to cut price to attract new customers or can they actually have a good proposition there um, to sell their product and grow their market share 
in a space or in an industry over time. We're looking for companies that do have those characteristics of vertical integration. So a company like Reese um, that owns distribution directly should trade at a higher multiple than a company that uh, operates in the same industry that's got to go through big box retailers because you just have more control over pricing. You have more control over when you do that. You have better visibility to your customer. You have less uh, inventory destocking at times in the cycle um, and you've got more just direct relationships and and, and you can own the customer. So we're looking for all of those attributes. Um, They're attributes of companies that, that we have, I guess, identified over time and you know when we talk about moving the portfolio into into these businesses you know these are long-held views that that we've had that we've been very patient with over time um you know you can see the performance of of those who bought those companies um you know knowing all of those attributes but paid the wrong price for them and you know i think we've we've been very patient around that we've we've certainly seen an opportunity this year to get set in those companies and many of them for the first time, um, you know, we won't, and we won't compromise on quality when we're looking for opportunities in the market. Uh, interest rates increasing have definitely led to a contraction in PEs and the art and science of, you know, the art part of, of investing now is determining, well, what's, what's the right price? And some of the PEs in these stocks have, have halved. So, you know, you're waiting for an opportunity there. We, we usually buy a little bit early. Uh, we sell a little bit early, but we still make money in between. Um, so the opportunity this year has been to be patient and wait for the chance to buy these companies on the back of higher interest rates where they've derated, uh, where we think where we think the derating process has really uh, has really you know probably probably decelerated. I don't think it's at an end yet because rates are still probably going up, but it's certainly. Uh, certainly decelerating, you know, and, and as a value-oriented investor, you know, a lot of the time you're buying things at, you know, half half of book value or, you know, companies that you think the assets are worth more than the share price. Um, and they don't grow that much usually. You're usually taking the arbitrage of, you know, the time arbitrage between when the market's, you know, marking down a set of assets and, and you can hold that over time. You know, this time we can actually afford to you know to pay the current price for for a lot of these growing companies and i think that's that's quite rare in in markets when you get that opportunity and one thing we've talked about internally has is the fact that um when when companies fall in price often it's on heavy trading volume but when when they rise and recover quite quickly can be on very little volume and almost by definition you mentioned it then it often means that you can get in a little bit early doesn't it just on that dynamic so just talk us through how that dynamic works because I think it's um, it's pretty interesting and pretty important I'll give you an example so um, one of the stocks we own today that that we didn't own at the start of the year is pinnacle investment management it's a very high high quality diversified uh, investment management company it's obviously got market leverage so it does uh, it does react the share price does react when markets move around so back in February um, March and April 2020. Uh, so we're talking around the time that the pandemic first hit. Pinnacle dropped from $6.75 to $2.64 in that three-month period on about 94 million shares of volume. So three months, almost 100 million shares traded. For the whole rest of 2020, about 100 million shares traded. But the stock price went up about two and a half times from the bottom to the end of the year where it, where it finished at about $7.10. 
So for three months, there was massive volume. The rest of the year, the whole rest of the nine months of that year, the same volume traded, but the stock moved up significantly over that time. So, you know, there was liquidity for the rest of the year, but not as much as in those in the average of those three months. So usually um, it's a it's a reorientation of share registers when things are going down. Um, you know, human nature says sell to avert losses sometimes uh, when you're feeling bad about that. Um, and it's a change from those shareholders that are uncomfortable to those that are comfortable. And we see that often. Uh, we try and take advantage of it as much as we possibly can. Having done your homework and knowing what you're looking for really helps that process because there is sometimes a short window in order to make those decisions. And if you're ready, you can act. And I think that's that's one of the key tenements that we that we always do. Most of our time is spent preparing and seeing companies, understanding what we are, and going back to the very first question today is doing your homework well enough that when things change, you can move. All right, now I'm going to jump back to mid-22, just chronologically trying to keep things moving through 22. We're jumping all over the place, which is great. But going back to mid-22 and just, just kind of pausing, it was pretty clear that there was uh, you know, a rising inflation environment. We know that now, but in mid-22, it was becoming even increasingly apparent and the price of money was, was going up. Now, we've, we've come out of a period, as I said before, 2018 to 2020 in particular, where the price of money was almost nothing, um, they're two very different environments to invest in, aren't they? And I'd, I'd love you to take us through that differing dynamic um, and why that's important when thinking about um, which companies to own. So when interest rates are very low and, the, and, and money is essentially free to financial market players and companies, there's very little discipline in markets. And, and it comes back to this concept of of discipline being reinstilled in markets today. So 2018 to 20, you saw companies that had no cash flow, had a lot of debt. Uh, they were reliant on on their stock price to keep refinancing the business in terms of further capital raisings. Banks would lend the money. VC investors were there with checks written out. Um, and the environment was one where if you could show any form of revenue growth, even if it was costing you $2 to get $1 of revenue growth, that was okay in the environment where money is free and, and liquidity is plentiful. So the discipline around investment decisions was low. That led to all sorts of things like companies that uh, had poor fundamentals surviving for much longer than they should have. Uh, that's all changed, obviously. Uh, but it also meant that the price that people were willing to pay for those assets grew astronomically high. And the market cap attached to some of the companies that were growing revenue. Uh, we heard recently that you know standard in private markets was 50 times revenue. And you see that in a bit in public markets as well. But you know how on earth do you re- how do you how do you make a return when you've paid that higher price? You've got to have a lot of revenue growth for a long time. So some of the assets might have been okay, but the prices paid for those were were not. And I think that's that's what's unwound as interest rates and the price of money's got off the floor is that that discipline is coming back into listed markets, coming back into private markets. The price that people are prepared to pay for assets is way down on what it was. And the discipline to continue to reinvest in a company that is spending $2 to make a dollar of revenue is is back and no one will do that today. 
So all those businesses that um, weren't able to make the jump between standing on others uh, or relying on others to standing on their own two feet in terms of a strong cash flow position, uh, they're probably worth close to zero today. And even if their market price isn't zero, you know who's who's going to fund that at a declining share price? Um, when when market when you're relying on markets and they turn on you, then you know you can't get that funding. So I think the discipline that attaches to to the environment today is much better. It's much better for us in terms of our investment process. We always thought balance sheet was important. We didn't get paid for that for many years. Uh, we always thought valuation was important, and you know that that was against us in an environment like 2018 to 20 as well. Well, it's been a reminder, right? So if others won't fund you, you've got to fund yourself. And the only way you fund yourself is via the balance sheet, um, which is obviously day-to-day funding, but it's also taking advantage of opportunities, not having to sell assets, um, being able to continue to expand the store network, going back to Reese we talked about before, um, and so on. So yeah, it's very different, very different, isn't it? Yeah, it's a good, and I think it's a good environment today. The discipline around uh, what's being paid for assets and 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 who who gets to survive in this environment is is a good thing. And yeah, you know, I think it's just the same for investors, the same for companies, in terms of what what they actually will do with with shareholders' money. Uh, it's very different today than what it would have been a, a couple of years ago. And so those companies that have put themselves in a good position by being disciplined in you know in in looser times. Um, when things tighten up, they can actually still still grow. So, as you said, the you know, use of a good balance sheet is to is to build inventory when you need to when there's supply chain issues. And not all companies can do that today, but those that are thinking forward and, and managing well can do that. Uh, you can continue to lease new space um, when maybe leasing the price of leasing properties is lower. Um, what a good option. You can acquire your competitors or other other businesses like businesses today if you've got a good balance sheet to do that, and if you've got shareholder support um, for accretive deals in in this environment, you know, and you can get those acquisitions at lower prices. So the discipline, and if you're investing alongside or in these businesses, um, you get to benefit from that. And I think that's that's the major thing that has changed in markets, and and we see that as quite enduring. It's not an environment. We don't think we're going back to the environment we saw up until you know the the, the interest rates started to move anytime soon. And you know, as far forward as we can think to imagine, you know, these are this is what the environment is today. So yeah, there are opportunities, of course, in that. Um, we'll never compromise the quality of a business, but you know, rising interest rates mean that the valuations come down, and as we've talked about, they they can be terrific opportunities. All right, so we then move into August and possibly one of the most fascinating reporting seasons in some time uh, on the back of uh, all the things we've talked about so far. Um, and it's really a, a report card of, of sorts for companies and for investment managers because we, we do try and get the earnings right. PE is harder to pick, but we try and get the earnings right. Obviously, companies need to actually deliver on the earnings that, uh, that are expected of them as well. Um, what, what were the trends evident from August and that might Bring us nicely up to um, you know closer to today around uh, around uh, what's actually occurring at a company level. So earnings in August were pretty solid across the ASX. On our numbers, about thirty five percent of companies beat EPS expectations, and the sectors that beat were in the consumer discretionary space, the real estate and energy space. Um, other areas like communications, healthcare, utilities had negative surprises, but overall. 
Uh, it was a pretty solid reporting season. It, interest rates had only just started to move. And as we, as we know that uh, the lag between the Reserve Bank moving rates and, and when the consumers start to feel that is probably two to three months. So it was very early given the first interest rates started to move in May uh, this year. What we did see though is um, labor rates are, are moving higher. That's pretty, that's pretty uh, well, it's across the board today. Um, and at the time back in August, we did see supply chains um, still being very slow, unpredictable. Shipping costs were, were higher uh, and transport costs obviously on the back of energy were higher as well. So it, it was a pretty robust reporting season, although I guess albeit early in the cycle. And how did the team go in, in, uh, in, in looking at those results? We did very well. Most of our very large positions outperformed meaningfully. We were ahead of the market by a significant margin. In fact, I mean, we always think about reporting season as a recalibration back to reality. You can get all the macro swings you like in between actual results, but when they hit, it really brings people back to the fundamentals of companies. So we enjoy reporting season. We've outperformed in eight of nine that we've been running the fund for now. Uh, and we've done that in times where our investment process is in favour and also out of favour, like we've talked about with very low rates and you know very little discipline in markets, we still tend to outperform in reporting season because it's it's that recalibration back to reality of people focusing on actual companies rather than you know what might be happening happening with central banks around the world. I and mean, 48% of our overweight positions beat expectations by more than 5%. And as far as as far as reporting seasons go, that that's a pretty good result for us. All right, I want to continue on that theme of taking, um, I guess, converting macro to realities because in September, we saw the US 10-year bond yield move extraordinarily from 3% to almost 4% in one month. And that's off the back of obviously um, inflation fears and so on. Um, but I want to I want to translate that back to the company level. So whilst that was happening, it's 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 a number that gets printed and it's the amalgamation of all sorts of forces. But at a, at a company level on the ground, in the last couple of months, well, what what are, what are management teams telling you? We have three to four hundred management meetings per year, um, so several per week. What's the what's the on the ground feedback from company CEOs? What we're seeing today is. Uh, interestingly, that everyone's expecting a recession, uh, but not many are actually seeing it. So consumer spending is still very strong. Uh, the level of bad debts at, in the banking sector is still very low. Uh, companies um, are talking cautiously for FY, well, the rest of, sorry, calendar year 23 generally, but they're not really seeing the weakness yet. So everyone's expecting weakness across the economy. It's not here yet. Some of the reasons for that are probably because the consumer balance sheets are quite good. The level of savings and liquidity and deposits is solid across consumer and business across the economy. Uh, there are very strong um, attributes of the Australian economy in particular that, that have been enduring through the year. And importantly, unemployment is very low. And employment, unemployment numbers came out again, which were even lower this week. So I think what companies are seeing and what they're expecting are, are very different at this point in time. And our contention is that it's not going to be that bad in terms of what we see during calendar year 23. We think that some of those 
trends will be more enduring than what the stock market is anticipating at this point. And let's face it, stock prices have been marked down materially in expectation of some of this. Uh, we saw, uh, we'll get onto it, but you know, even companies in the US uh, that are having very strong operating environments are saying, I oh, will do less next year. And we kind of say, why would you do that when your operating environment's so strong and your fundamentals are good? And they said, well, everyone else is saying that too. And we just don't want to be tone deaf. So I think there's a bit of, uh, there's, there's caution out there because, you know, you're seeing it in the media, you're seeing it from, you know, commentators, but companies right now uh, are seeing things reasonably strong. I mean, overall, from a market commentator perspective and general sentiment, have you seen it this pessimistic for 23 in particular in the 20 years you've been investing? I think I'd have to think back to probably 2012 um, where, you know, no one wanted to own equities. There was a big European debt crisis on. There was, uh, you know, credit default swaps were all the rage and uh, I think, um, you know, even John Paulson's fund in the US had started managing about $30 billion on the back of, you know, the GFC where he was short US mortgages. And so, yeah, that's the environment we are in back then. I'd have to think back to some time like that where there was a whole lot of macro overhangs and noise and, and news flow um, and pessimism in markets that, you know, things couldn't get off the canvas. Um, that's what it feels like today. And, you know, it, it's interesting to sort of think, you know, sometimes when everyone's bearish and negative, you know, in investing, you need to think about another time and, and what would the fundamentals be like if the sentiment or what would the share prices be like if the sentiment was a little bit different? Um, it, 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 it's sort of, it's interesting to, to think about that. It's interesting to separate yourself a little bit from the news flow. I think being a little bit independently minded, you've got to think through what you know about companies, what you think about the valuations from the noise that you see out there. But certainly in an environment like that, where there was a lot of macro noise, um, you know, at the time everyone thought Greece would go broke and the, and the Euro would split up. And I think, you know, the extreme pessimism you hear in the commentaries today is not unlike that. Um, and because, it doesn't because, take, sorry. Because, yeah, no, yeah. because market, I think this is a really important point, because general market pessimism and market risk, in inverted commas, is quite different often to specific company risk and specific company outlooks, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, we often think we can use the macro to get set in specific companies with specific attributes that are doing quite well in the environment where all share prices are being buffeted by by these kind of you know macro crosswinds. It, it doesn't take much in an environment where people are you know reasonably pessimistic to change that sentiment. Um, so if you get the fundamentals right and you can invest off the back of poor sentiment, you know this is where you can you can make some money. I mean, one thing uh, I found. Um, you know, looking through the recent commentators was, you know, not everyone's totally pessimistic. There's you know, the guy that used to run Goldman Sachs, Lloyd Blankfein, said in 2012, one of the big risks is that people have to contemplate is that things go right. Uh, and he said something similar about a month ago in that he said the bad news is so stacked up that people are underappreciating the fact that there are several plausible pieces of good news that could affect the market positively. In markets and not just the current economy, are uh, not just the current economy. They look ahead, 
So he's thinking about, you know, Federal Reserve pausing or moderating the rate rises, a UK truce, China lockdowns ending, which is kind of funnily enough, about a couple of weeks ago, the market started to think about that. Um, you know, so you see, there's some there's some operators out there that do, do think a bit differently. And, uh, you know, he was right in 2012. Will he be right now? We're not sure. Um, but I think in investing, you have to have to think about different environments, not just be affected by the current environment, and you're making your decisions going forward. Um, and the one thing we, we, we tend to focus on in an environment like this is, is the future returns that you can generate. So the future returns that you're going to generate are, what, are about what you do today. And it's, it's easier in an environment like this, um, which makes you feel much more comfortable, is to batten down the hatches and not do anything. And in fact, maybe invest in a whole lot of defensives. You can sit back and say, well, you know, um, we'll, we'll be okay because we're investing in, in, in businesses that are you know, highly priced, they can't grow, but they feel good because they're defensive. Um, only to find out a year later on that, you know, you should have been acting and buying things that were cheap. Um, you've missed out on some opportunities. And it is uncomfortable buying, you know, stocks that are down 50% from where they used to trade. But if you can focus on the fundamentals and understand the specifics of companies, you can, I guess, sort through the macro noise and find those opportunities. Because certainly markets fluctuate between this euphoric sentiment and this overly more pessimistic sentiment. And more times than not, it doesn't end up at those extremes. It ends up treading a path down the middle somewhere. I guess they go too euphoric and too pessimistic because it actually feels quite good to buy a stock that's going up and it actually feels good to sell a stock going down because you feel as though you're avoiding losses and um, that by very definition means you get the swings on the upside and the downside and in reality um, at a company level it's usually not as bad or as good as um, as what the market is saying at the time. Now you just mentioned you were uh, over in the US for a, well, a pretty busy week um, key takeaways from that trip. You, how many cities did you visit in a week? About ten. Uh, yeah, we, we and we did uh, four states in five days, so we're pretty much flying every day. An ambitious schedule, but a good one. It was a good one. It was very uh, yeah. I was pretty tired by the end of it. Um, but we went to see uh, companies right across the spectrum of the U.S. economy, uh, from you know banking to retail, to other financials. We went. We drove three hours to see a specific asset that one of the companies we own operates. Um, so the mix between very specific asset uh, tours and um, and across the economy kind of commentary, um, we saw people pretty optimistic. And uh, you know, going back to that sentiment of companies are actually doing quite well at the moment. You know, advertising is doing quite well. Airlines are doing well. Um, you know, plumbing supplies and renovation businesses are doing well. Retail is still doing well. Um, there are some signs of slowdown, but generally uh, we got the, the idea that companies are in a better place than maybe what markets are giving them credit for. Um, many of them have very good balance sheets. So the indebtedness that we saw pre-GFC and the weaknesses inherent in that system aren't there today. And whilst there will be some form of slowdown, almost no doubt, it's the mix between what the market's expecting that to be and what it will be is where the opportunity lies. So we do we do these tours to see something uh, different, to get another perspective on our market uh, and offshore markets. Um, 
understand the strategy that companies are following, understanding how they're allocating their capital, understanding what the management teams are doing. And I mean, the US market is so is so large and so varied. Um, you know, it's it, it does vary a lot from East Coast to West Coast. Um, the other part of it is to work out, you know, how much of the political noise is is affecting people's decisions in the US. It doesn't feel like that. That's that's a big deal, even though it's a lot in the media. Uh, companies are just getting on with it through a through an environment where, you know, there there are some, and you know, there's caution out there, but but generally, you know, things are pretty healthy. All right, now let's just move to inflation again. It's not a direct input into the investment process, obviously, but it's a key topic, and and I think the listeners will be interested in in your perspective. Can I just step through each of the or many of the different components and just just get your view on where the balance of risks are from here. So these, um, I guess, drivers, if I step through them one by one. So so end consumer demand, what do you reckon looking forward? Uh, consumers will have um, less money to spend through FY23. We think that you know, today, while it's very healthy, there will be some moderation probably mid next calendar year. It almost has to be. The, the lag in passing through the price of money to consumers um, will start to bite at some point, or almost no doubt. The 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 thing it will be that you know, how much of the rate rises uh, actually actually filter through to the end consumer. There is a large proportion of mortgage repayments in Australia that will not have to move, even if the cash rate was three and a half percent. So there is some buffer in the system, and we think that you know there's a there's a large spectrum of outcomes for different levels of consumers as well. So we do think there's pockets of strength there. Generally, it will start to hit probably sometime mid next year, um, but from a probably from a higher base than what, what the market's anticipating today. All right, another key input, commodity prices. So metals, plastics, timber, oil and gas, um, et cetera. If we look through, uh, let's say natural gas is, you know, back to where it was almost uh, pre Russia invading Ukraine. The oil price is about today 10 bucks above where it was um, a year ago. Lumber has come down significantly. Copper hasn't moved for around five years. Um, the price of iron ore you know, has come down from 220 to, to about 95. So we're seeing general unwind of some of the strength in commodity prices that have endured through most of this calendar year. Um, you know, a year and a half ago, it was easy to see the rise of inflation through the rise of some of the commodity prices that, that we're talking about here. Uh, they're moderating. So I think how that feeds into future inflation prints is interesting. Uh, some of the tightness in those markets has come out as we've gone through the year as trades kind of opened up through the world. Uh, I'm not saying that they will become weaker necessarily from here, but some of the tightness is definitely unwound. And as China opens up to whatever degree it does, um, one would think that inputs into uh, manufacturing that then get exported globally go down in price. So maybe there's some less inflation being exported by China. I won't say deflation. I mean, deflation of a higher, higher base, whatever, but certainly less inflationary pressures there perhaps. Now, supply Supply chain pressures, so shipping rates, port delays, delivery times, what are you seeing? Every business we speak to, uh, every retailer, every company that moves anything around the world, 
is saying that the shipping rates have come back to normal. Uh, port delays uh, are back to normal. Uh, delivery times, everything is is operating uh, kind of pre-pandemic levels. So that's really interesting. I mean, some of these things went up five or ten times, um, and the 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 time to move things around blew out by four or five times. So that's really interesting. All of those metrics are are back back to you know, let's say back to normal. All right, and then finally, wage inflation, which uh, we all know wages are going up. That's it's well known, depending on the on the sector. So that that's been occurring. But at the same time, you're now starting to see immigration occur again. You're seeing the global population becoming mobile again. So what are we seeing on the wage inflation side? We are we're seeing four to five percent wage increases across the economy, and just about every company we talk to who's got a very large workforce is is doing that. Um, it feels like that could go on for some time, actually. So there's maybe multi-year agreements being struck today that kind of lock that in, those sort of increases in for, for a couple of years. Uh, there are still a, a lot of shortages in, in industries. And I think because, I mean, obviously the unemployment rate's very low. So people are finding it tough to, you know, to get labour, um, a lot of specific industries. But just generally, the tightness in labour markets should see that uh, having some longevity. All right. Now, I'm going to read a quote here from Victor Spitz, who I used to work with. We, we don't talk to too many strategists and, and economists, um, but um, Victor's one that, that often puts through a very well thought through and interesting perspective. So I'll read this quote. So, having underestimated infl- the inflationary spike, policymakers are in danger of understating how quickly inflation can come off. This should, I'll replace should with could. But he said this should open a window, a wide window for central banks to prioritise growth rather than being obsessed by inflation. A better equity equilibrium, lower risk-free rate and equity risk premium offset by lower but not negative EPS. thought it was interesting. We don't know what's going to happen. It's not part per se of the investment process, but obviously it's a topic that's been discussed and we discuss a lot. Yeah, I think think, uh, Victor's looking a reasonable long way ahead there. And look, I think it's important to do that. Today, though, uh, we're positioned in in businesses that that will survive this cycle. So there is a cycle on. There's no doubt the price of money is higher. It's probably not going back to what we saw a couple of years ago. So we're positioned in businesses that will survive. So strong cash flows, good balance sheets, well managed, good ESG strategies in place. Um, but there are, there is a part of this cycle to go with those companies that you know haven't gone to zero yet that are sort of on. You know, on life support in markets, um, dependent on markets because they haven't got the wherewithal to stand on their own. So I think first and foremost, we're in companies that survive, and you know the price you pay uh, is less important than than the company actually surviving. I know that's obvious, but um, I think you know from here you, th- those opportunities e- exist that um, you know in, in businesses that are strong that have actually been marked down a lot, as we talked about. We took the opportunity to change the portfolio this year in the market weakness, and we haven't battened down the hatches here. We haven't gone defensive as markets have gone down. There's been a massive rotation in in the Australian market this year. Some companies have been well supported through that, like BHP. You know, we've been selling businesses like that into strength. We've been putting the proceeds into high quality, enduring businesses that we think can grow EPS through the cycle. Um, it does cost you a little bit to do that, of course. I mean, you have to be a bit on the on the front foot, um, but but again, firmly focusing 
our eyes on the opportunity ahead and the future returns from making those changes is really important. Um, and let's, lastly, I'll just reiterate that the discipline around investment decisions for companies and investors um, is back and that's a good thing for us. So I think this is an environment where you know, it makes more sense than the ill-disciplined uh, environment that we found ourselves in a couple of years ago. This is where you know you can um, you can buy businesses at sensible prices for the future opportunity, and make money out of that. Um, companies are making probably better decisions today around acquisitions, growth, how they spend their money, how they so spend shareholders' money, um, and we like that. And our view generally today is that with all the bad news on the horizon that the market can climb this wall of worry and that and the outcomes in in calendar year 23 will probably not manifest as bad as what expectations are um, so we're fully invested we've got large overweight positions in food companies agricultural companies market related stocks and cyclicals and including building stocks that have been sold off as rates have moved up and we think there's terrific opportunity in the portfolio of companies we hold today. Well, that sounds like a wrap, Nathan. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure having you as our um, well, 21st guest and the second time on the Good Investing Podcast. So I think that will be very insightful for people looking at 22, but more importantly, looking ahead at uh, 2023. Thanks very much. Thanks, Matt. Thank you for listening to the Good Investing Podcast. Subscribe to hear future episodes and for more information about Ethical Partners Funds Management, visit ethicalpartners.com.au. The information contained in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute investment or financial advice. You should seek tailored advice that is specific to your circumstances before making any investment decision.